Peace be to you. In this lesson, we continue the creed, which links together the birth of our Lord, his cross, and his resurrection. We consider in this lesson particularly his sufferings and resurrection. And we begin with the agony of our Lord. Here we are dealing with a great mystery. Our blessed Lord suffered mentally and physically. We touch upon first his mental sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane. The time was immediately after the Last Supper. There is only one recorded time in the life of our blessed Lord when he sang. And that was after the Last Supper when he went out to his death. He then told his apostles that they would all be shaken during this hour. Remember that our Lord always spoke of his crucifixion and his sufferings in terms of hour, his glory in terms of day. Evil has its hour. God has his day. As he entered that garden into which he had often gone to pray, he told his apostles that they would be scandalized in him that night because the shepherd would be struck. And they were scandalized indeed. For a short time after the agony, they fled. But he told them, however, when he went in, I will go before you into Galilee when I have risen from the dead. Such a promise was never made before, that a dead man would keep an appointment with his friends after three days in the tomb. Though the sheep would forsake the shepherd, the shepherd would not forsake the sheep. As Adam lost the heritage of union with God in the garden, so now our blessed Lord ushers in our restoration in a garden. Eden and Gethsemane are two gardens around which revolve the fate of humanity. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, Christ took humanity's sin upon himself. In Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Christ interceded with his father. In Eden, God sought out Adam in his sin of rebellion. In Gethsemane, the new Adam Christ sought out the father in submission and resignation. In Eden, a sword was drawn to prevent entrance into the Garden of Eden and thus immortalize evil. In Gethsemane, our Lord told Peter to sheathe the sword that he had carried. Now, there are two elements that are bound up together in this agony. Sin-bearing and sinless obedience. He goes a far from his apostles. 
about as far, the scriptures say, as a man could throw a stone. What a curious way to measure distance. And our Lord threw himself upon his face, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass me by. Only as thy will is, not as mine is. Notice how the two natures of our Lord are involved here. He and the Father were one, so he did not pray, Our Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass. But my Father, unbroken was the consciousness of his Father's love. But on the other hand, remember that he's man as well as God. His human nature recoiled from death as a penalty for sin. It was very natural for a human nature to shrink from the punishment which sin deserves. So the prayer to have the cup of passion pass was human. In other words, the no was human. The yes to the divine will was the overcoming of that human reluctance to suffering for the sake of redemption. Our blessed Lord now takes upon himself the sins of the world as if he himself were guilty. This is very difficult for us to understand because we always think of physical suffering as a greater evil than moral. Furthermore, we become so used to sin, we do not realize its horror. The innocent understand sin much better than the sinful. The one thing from which man never learns anything by experience is sinning. A sinner becomes infected with sin. It becomes so much a part of him that he may even think himself virtuous, as the feverish think themselves well at times. It is only the virtuous who stand outside of the current of sin, who can look upon evil as a doctor looks upon disease, and who understand the full horror of evil. It is also impossible for us to realize how God felt the opposition of human wills to the divine will. I wonder what example we could find to illustrate that. Perhaps the closest is when a parent feels the strangeness of the power of an obstinate will of one of his children. That child can resist and spurn persuasion, love, hope, and fear of punishment. What a strong power abides in a body so slight and a mind so childish. This is a faint picture of men when they have sinned willfully. What is sin for the soul but a separate principle of wisdom, 
working out his own ends as if there were no God. Antichrist is nothing but the full, unhindered growth of self-will. That's what our Lord had to face in the garden. The opposition of all human wills to the divine will. So in obedience now to the Father's will, our Lord takes upon himself the iniquities of all the world to become a sin-bearer. There never was a sin committed in the world for which he did not suffer. The sin of Adam was there. When as the head of the humanity, he lost for all men the heritage of God's grace. Cain was there, purple in the sheet of his brother's blood. The abominations of Sodom and Gomorrah were there. The forgetfulness of his chosen people who fell down before false gods were there. The coarseness of pagans who had revolted against the natural law. These pagans were there too. All sins were there. Sins committed in the country that made all nature blush. Sins of the young for whom the tender heart of Christ was pierced. Sins of the old who should have passed the age of sinning. Sins committed in the darkness, where it was thought the eyes of God could not pierce. Sins committed in the light that made even the wicked shudder. Blasphemy seemed to be on his lips, as if he had spoken them. And from the north and the south, the east and the west, the foul miasma of the world's sin rushes upon him like a flood. Samson-like, he reaches up and pulls down the whole guilt of the world upon himself as if he were guilty, paying for the debt in our name so that we might once more have access to the Father. He was, so to speak, mentally preparing himself for the great sacrifice laying upon his sinless soul the sins of a guilty world. I say every sin was there. Your sin was there. And so was mine. And is it any wonder then that there began to pour from his body drops of blood that fell upon the ground like beads forming a rosary of redemption. Sin is in the blood, and for the remission of sin, blood had to be poured forth. He was guiltless. But he prayed and suffered in our name. Then came Judas. Our Lord had to understand even false brethren. Judas threw his arms around the neck of our blessed Lord and blistered his lips with a kiss. 
Our Lord is now made a buffoon during the night, as he is also tried before two religious judges, Annas and Caiaphas. In all, our blessed Lord was tried before four judges. Two of them were religious judges. They belonged to the Jews. Two were civil judges, Pilate and Herod. Pilate was a Roman, a Gentile, and Herod was an Edomite. The judges could not agree on why he should be condemned. Different charges were made in different courts. In the religious court, our blessed Lord was condemned of blasphemy. In the civil court, our blessed Lord is condemned of treason. Before the religious judges, he is found to be too religious, too divine, too unworldly. Before the civil judges, he's found to be too political, too human, too worldly. They cannot agree on why he should be condemned. They can only agree that he should be. And simply because he is to be condemned on contradictory charges, one because he's too divine and the other because he's too human, where would there be a fitting punishment except the sign of contradiction, which is the cross? Let us take a brief scene from each of these trials. The trial before the religious judges. Caiaphas was unable to find any reason why he could condemn our Lord. He introduced false witnesses, but the witnesses could not agree among themselves. Caiaphas finally resorted to an oath. He put our blessed Lord under it. And with all of the sternness that he could muster, and annoyed by all the contradictions of the witnesses that he had heard, he said to our blessed Lord, I adjure thee by the living God to tell us whether thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Now, when Caiaphas asked that question, if he was the Christ, the Son of God, remember that his mind was not like ours. When you and I hear the word Christ, we go back to his earthly life, not Caiaphas. Caiaphas was going back through all of the prophecies. He was going back to the book of Genesis. He knew how the Messiah had been foretold. And so the question was, was he the Messiah? Was he the Son of God? Was he clad with divine power? Was he the Word made flesh? Was it true that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spoke to us through the prophets, in these last days was speaking through him the Son? And so he asked, Art thou the Son of God? And our Lord answered, I am. 
with sublime consciousness and majestic dignity, he announced that he was the Messiah and the Son of the living God. And when he said, I am, I'm sure that Caiaphas remembered that when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, those were the words that God used of himself. I am who I am. Our Lord now speaks to Caiaphas again and says, Moreover, I tell you this, you will see the Son of Man again when he is seated at the right hand of God's power and comes on the clouds of heaven. Notice our blessed Lord affirmed his divinity, then his humanity, and both under the personal pronoun I. He is telling Caiaphas that someday he will be judged. Caiaphas now finds our blessed Lord guilty. He rends his garments as a token of the fact that he had heard blasphemy because Christ was making himself God. But Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, and the people could not put our blessed Lord to death. That power belonged to the Romans. And so they hustle our blessed Lord as the prisoner off to Pilate. He has several trials before Pilate, and Pilate sends him off to Herod. But it is interesting to note the charge that is brought before Pilate against our blessed Lord. In the trial of any ordinary human being, there is a continuity of charges. Our blessed Lord was found guilty of blasphemy. Now, when the prisoner is brought to a higher court, you would think that he would still be condemned of blasphemy. But he's not. Why not? Well, because if Caiaphas and his friends told Pilate that our blessed Lord had made himself God, Pilate would laugh at them. Pilate was a pagan. He would say, I have my gods. You are yours. I sprinkle incense before mine every morning. They therefore had to find some other charge. Now the charge that they would bring against our blessed Lord would be treason. He would be too political. He would be too human. He would be too early. It must be remembered too that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin hated the Romans. The Romans had conquered their country. Roman judges were seated in judgment. Roman coinage was in their pockets. Caesar's ensigns were all over the city of Jerusalem and all through the land that was holy. They hated the invader. They hated Rome. Now when they bring our blessed Lord before Pilate and he asks what charges do they bring against the man, they said that they had found him guilty of perverting the nation, refusing to give tribute to Caesar. Refusing to give tribute to Caesar. Caesar whom they hated. Pilate knew that they did not love Caesar. But in order to win their release, after many incidents in the trial, they finally said to him, Thou art no friend of Caesar if thou dost release him. 
The man who pretends to be a king is Caesar's rival. Pilate was afraid of being reported to Rome. What would Tiberius do to him? Would he unseat him? But Pilate tried to save our Lord. He had called our Lord innocent seven times. Now he scourges our blessed Lord, brings him out before the people and says, Behold your king! And up against that marble balustrade there came a wave of voices saying, We have no king but Caesar. And Pilate gave up Jesus into their hands to be crucified. Our Lord is now led to Calvary. Once on those heights, he offers his hands to his executioners, the hands from which the world's graces flow. The first dull knock of the hammer is heard in silence. Mary and John hold their ears. The sound is unendurable. The echo sounded as another stroke. And then the cross is lifted slowly off the ground. Then with a thud that seemed to shake even hell itself, it sank into the pit prepared for it. Our Lord has mounted his pulpit for the last time. He spoke seven words. That is to say seven times. We cannot give you the seven words for want of time but the first word of our blessed Lord was for all who had crucified and all who had brought him to death Father forgive them they know not what they do it is not wisdom that saves it is ignorance and then after hanging three hours on the cross our blessed Lord now prepares to surrender his life. Remember that he had often said, No man takes my life away from me. I lay it down of myself. It is to be noted, therefore, that when our blessed Lord came to the seventh word, the scriptures say that he spoke those words in a loud voice to show that he was the master of his own life. Just as planets only after a long period of time complete their orbits and then come back to their starting point as if to salute him who sent them on our way. So now he was the prodigal son who left the father's house, wasted his life and his blood for our sakes, is preparing to go back home and he lets fall from his lips the perfect prayer. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. There is a rupture of a heart through a rapture of love. He bows his head and dies.
Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come to take him down from the cross. They embalm him in a hundred pounds of spices. And it is interesting what scripture says. In the same quarter where he was crucified, there was a garden. The word garden hinted at Eden in the fall of man, as it also suggested through its flowers in the springtime the resurrection from the dead. In that garden was a tomb in which, in the language of scripture, no man had ever been buried. Born of a virgin womb, he is buried in a virgin tomb. And as Crashaw said, and a Joseph did betroth them both. Nothing seems more repellent than to have a crucifixion in a garden. And yet there would be compensation, for the garden would have its resurrection. He was born in a stranger's cave, and so he is buried in a stranger's grave, because human birth and human death are equally foreign to him. Dying for others, he's placed in another's grave. His grave was borrowed, borrowed, for he would give it back on Easter, as he gave back the beast which he rode on Palm Sunday, when he said, The Lord hath need of it. When he rose from the dead, he made many appearances, as we have already said, and one of the appearances of the resurrection for which we did not give many details, was a week after. All of the other apostles had seen our blessed Lord. They had been become convinced, but only after much evidence and after much doubting. And our blessed Lord comes into the upper room and says, Peace be to you. Now Thomas had refused to believe. Thomas, one of the apostles. He said, I will not believe until I have seen the mark of nails on his hands until I have put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hands into his side. You will never make me believe. Now our blessed Lord appears. Speaks to Thomas. Let me have thy finger. See? Here are my hands. Let me have thy hand. Put it into my side. Cease thy doubting and believe. And throwing himself on his knees, he said to the risen Savior, Thou art my Lord and my God. Oh, there are some who will never believe, even when they see. Thomas thought that he was doing the right thing and demanding the full evidence of sensible proof. But what would become of future generations if the same evidence was to be demanded by them? Suppose you would not believe the resurrection until you could put finger into his hand and hand to his side. The future believers, our Lord implied, must accept the fact of the resurrection from those who have been with him. Our Lord thus pictured the faith of believers 
after the apostolic age, when there would be none who would have seen it, but their faith would have a foundation because the apostles themselves had seen the risen Christ. How do we know there was a resurrection? Simply because the church was there. The church was there when the apostles, they saw the resurrection. Thomas was there, the daughter. Thomas believed. And he believed in the name of all who could not see sensibly, but could accept the testimony of those whom Christ sent out to preach the gospel of the resurrection to all nations. But the story is not over. And the next lesson we will touch on his ascension to the right hand of the Father.